0: This is AA Beyond Belief, a podcast for, by, and about people who have found a secular path to sobriety in Alcoholics Anonymous. Continuing with our Wednesday speaker series, today you'll be hearing from Bill H. from the Kansas City area, and this is a talk he gave at the KC Secular AA speaker meeting on December 1st, 2018. At the time of this talk, he was sober for 52 years. Bill talks about his early days getting sober in the late 1960s and early 1970s, his time on the AA speaker circuit, and how he approaches his recovery today. My name is Bill and I'm an alcoholic.
1: What it was like, what happened, and what it's like now, I don't know whether I can wrap that up in 15 or 20 minutes or not. My sobriety date is September the 28th, 1967. So I'm working on my 52nd year. Been around for a while. It's a long time between drinks. I came to Kansas City. Gosh, it must be almost 30 years ago. Kevin, how long have you been here? Okay, so. Somewhere around one well, twenty seven years ago, I came because Kevin was just getting sober when I got here at any rate, I started to to do a I think I had my first drink in a public bar when I was fourteen, and I had a lot of fun in the early days. I have friends who were in trouble from the time they took their first drink, and that wasn't true for me. I had a lot of fun it was you know just drinking after parties and after dances through the through the high school years and the college years I went to a, uh, a very upstanding Christian college. If they caught you drinking, even if you were off campus, you were expelled immediately. And uh, so, the, I didn't have the usual college experience as far as drinking was concerned either. But as soon as the college years were over and I was free to do what I wanted, the, the drinking went out of control very quickly. Like I said, I had some fun, even even in the early days of the of the heavy drinking. I had, I had some fun with it. But the time came when it was the most important thing in my life. If they if they weren't serving liquor, if it wasn't in a bar, I wasn't going going there. Again, there, there weren't any particular problems. I had grown up with a feeling of being different. And I've heard this hundreds of times from other people in the program. And I'm not quite so sure how I thought I knew what other people felt like. But I felt like I felt differently than other people. They would seem to enjoy each other. They'd laugh and, and have, have a lot of camaraderie. And I would go through the motions. You couldn't tell from the outside looking at me, but I felt differently. I never felt that that close or that relaxed with people. And the alcohol made it possible to do that, to unwind. the uh, The first couple drinks were kind of like somebody who hasn't had a cigarette for a long time that's addicted. That first drag, you just feel, and alcohol was like that for me. The problem was that it continually took more and more and more to get that feeling. Until it turned on me, and I didn't drink any more for the for the relaxation and for the pleasure, I drank because I had to and uh, that went on for a few years and when I realized that I, that it was starting to get me in trouble, I decided that it was time to give it, to give it up and to quit drinking, and I'd go on the wagon it would never last more than three or four days and I'm pretty sure at the time because I can remember lying to people, I'd tell them that I had been sober for a week or two weeks, and it was never true so I could stay sober for a few days. And as soon as I started to feel good, I, I would think, oh, one couldn't hurt me, you know. And I'd take that one and I would feel it all over my body, that that, that same feeling that I described a second or two ago, just <sighs> And once I had that, then if one felt good, two would feel better, and three would be just great, and one for the road, and one for the ditch, and all of a sudden, it's off to the races and I'm falling down drunk again. And the only time my hands stopped shaking was when I when I had a couple drinks in me. When I couldn't quit, eventually I got to the point where I quit quitting. And I decided to drink myself to death. And it was literal. I'm not talking about a subconscious death, which I knew what I was doing. I deliberately tried to drink myself to death. I thought it would kill fear. I had used it all my life to kill fear. And I thought eventually it will kill me too. And so I gave it a try. What I didn't count on was that it's not the easiest way in the whole world for a young man to die. Like I said, don't let the white hair and the beard fool you. I've been around here for a long time, so I was still comparatively young. And it, like I said, it's not the easiest way for a young man to die. Pain up and down my spine and in my legs and burning sensations about the size of a quarter half dollar in my back and the, and the muscles in my back. I uh, I would throw things back up again. Sometimes I would have to have a couple drinks in the morning just to hold anything down on my stomach. And I'm all, all familiar with projectile vomiting. I could turn my head and hit that wall really, real easy. No problem at all. Except eventually, things would start coming up yellow green because I wasn't eating anything anymore except the kind of things that you can buy at a bar. Salmon Sharpies, hard-boiled eggs, deviled eggs, pickled eggs. And that that was my diet. Whatever I could drink at a bar or eat at a bar, that's what i ate and even when there wasn't anything yellow green to throw up anymore my system didn't seem to know that there was nothing down there and i would keep trying to heave things up and i would go through a period of dry heaves i learned how to drink water just so i would have something to throw back up again i learned how to put abdec in it because it's the it's the vitamins that they give to babies that have colic i don't know whether it helped any or not but i tried it i learned how to drink warm water rather than cold water because it's nicer to throw up warm water than it is to throw up water that's still cold so I learned a lot during those those, uh, those years that I tried to quit drinking. And then, like I said, eventually just gave up and quit quitting. When I couldn't kill myself that way, when I found out how, how difficult that was, I, I went back to the trying to get sober again and I would lock myself up in little places and I'd sweat, sweat it out for four or five days. And I would eventually get hungry and go out to get something to eat. And you, like I said, you don't eat anywhere except in a restaurant that has a bar. Uh, or you go into a bar that you know, you know has kind of the uh, the food that I've already described. I don't know exactly how long I tried tried that, but four or five times at least, I would lock myself up into this little, little little motel hotel, whatever motel, whatever you want to call it. Actually, what it was was a shack, and there was a single light bulb hanging down in the middle of the room, and the floors were concrete, and they kind of sloped to a drain in the middle. And I would, like I said, I would spend four or five days in that in that place, and uh, the only entertainment they didn't have T.V.s or anything like that. They would rent that that shack to me for a couple dollars, and uh, my entertainment for a lot of that time, the place was kind of just inundated with silverfish, and they they would get behind the radiators where it was warm, and I had a can of lighter fluid, and I would squirt lighter fluid on the. Underneath them and they would scurry across the floor, and I would light them and watch the watch the flaming silverfish scurrying across the floor. It was great entertainment, it was a lot of fun. I had just come out of one of those when I accidentally coincidentally whatever you want to call it, met the man who was to become my sponsor i uh, had been teaching those last the last years of my drinking and my teaching salary I walked out on my teaching job 6 weeks before the school year was over and the salary from the teaching was toward the end of the summer and my salary was would be gone soon the prorated part of part of the salary would would end and I needed an income so I thought I could make a living in real estate the family owned a small construction company and I thought maybe I could make a make a living off their name so I applied for for a license and eventually I needed an ID picture and the photographer was the man who became my sponsor I walked in to have my picture taken he had known me since I was 13 14 years old and uh, he just took one look at me and he said you look like hell what's wrong with you and I said and I was beyond lying I, I was a sponsor's dream there was no denial at all I just said John I drink too much and I don't I can't stop and he said get your coat and we ended up in a 5-day detox center and in that At that time period in the history, I was lucky enough to have that detox center almost in my backyard. And uh, there weren't many places like that anywhere in the country. I'm not sure that there were any at all of those short-term detox centers. You couldn't get an alcoholic into a hospital in those days. A lot of the hospitals, you'd take them to an emergency ward and they'd say, get him out of here. He's not sick, he's drunk. So I was lucky to have that. And I never went through that detox as a patient. But they had coffee rooms, maybe about the size of this room, maybe a little bit bigger. And they had f- three or four uh, maple wood tables. And I would sit at those tables every day and listen to the people who came in to work with the, the patients that were were in there for treatment. And I would just sit there and listen to them. I never talked to anybody because if I talked to anybody, I would start to shake again. And I didn't want, I didn't want to go through that anymore. So I just was quiet. I just sat there and listened. Eventually, I... Started to follow my sponsor and his buddies around. They did a lot of service work, and again, I never said anything. I would just go with them—court groups, hospital groups, jail groups—and I just tagged along. I lost my temper in a court group one night, and the words just kept tumbling out. And when they found out I could talk, from then on, for the next year or so, I spent on a on a speaker circuit for the tri-state area. And the tri-state area for me at that time was West Virginia, Pennsylvania, and Ohio. And uh, I had a lot of a lot of fun. Be nervous for the first couple of minutes, and then I would just kind of relax and enjoy. And I enjoyed the, the years that I spent on the on the circuit. I can remember doing one to a group that was very much like the Ward Parkway Parkway group. Uh, a lot of affluent people. I looked at the front row of that little meeting one night, and there must have been a couple hundred million dollars of assets sitting across the front row. I, I won't mention the names because they're they're nationally known. But there was a, a woman who sat kind of the center of there and, and maybe a, a row or two back. And she just sat there and she stared at me with her mouth hanging open. And I said, Franny, what's wrong? And I stopped right in the middle of my talk. And she said, I didn't know you could talk. I thought you were permanently brain damaged. So that's how quiet I was. I never talked to anybody ever unless I absolutely had to. And she thought she thought I had just burned too many brain cells out. At the end of the first year, the temptation to take a drink during the, during those initial months was tremendous because I knew one drink and I would start to feel better. And my withdrawals were horrible. They went on and on and on. I didn't have the legal troubles. I didn't have the DUIs, DWIs that a lot of people have. There's no jail time, no prison time. Uh, I didn't have any serious financial problems. I walked out on a marriage, but it wasn't very much of a marriage to begin with, so that wasn't a big loss either. She was perfectly willing for the marriage to go on as long as I would start drinking with her again. To give you an idea of where I was with all of that, it just got to be an impossible situation. So, at the end of the first year, I had gone to a lecture at Pitt for on alcoholism, and as we walked up the stairs, somebody introduced the woman that was walking next to me. And by the time we got to the top, she was a great deal older than I was, but we just really, really hit it off. And she controlled all of the money for rehabilitation in the state of Pennsylvania. So by the time we got to the top of the lecture room. I had a, the, I could have gone to work in any one of several hospitals, and I chose the one her brother was chief of staff on. So I worked in the field, and I doubled my teaching salary by the time I I took that job, uh, and I thought that was pretty neat. If I told you what those salaries were today, it would be laughable, but at the time, it was kind of affluent. 10000 bucks 50-some years ago was a lot of money, so, like I said, I had doubled my teaching salary. I think my last teaching salary was forty-eight hundred dollars for the year. It was a country school; they weren't paying very well. But at any rate, I felt guilty about taking that paycheck when I knew that anybody who had been sober for for more than a year knew more about alcoholism and recovery than I did. So I did, you know, what what seemed right. I quit, and uh, I got got my replacement before I before I quit. And and she took was a nurse and took the job. And I, I went to Atlanta, Georgia, and worked with the convicts coming out of the prisons. And all the guys that were in prison because of something they did while they were either, either stoned or, or drunk. And uh, fell in love with, with the program. So I just, like I said, I just gave up my job with the hospital and moved down to Atlanta. Uh, it was interesting. The lieutenant governor was on the board of directors, and the whole thing was phony. They had faked their statistics, and they were doing it just for for the influence that it gave them. When I found that out, I quit that job and moved back up to Pennsylvania and, and asked if they could find a job for me again. And I still had all the contacts from being there before, so they got me they got me a job, all right, a farm on the West Virginia Pennsylvania line. And the place when I walked in, it was it was a wreck, and. Uh, the guys that were in there it was all all men at that point and the guys that were in there were afraid they wouldn't ever get anything to eat on a, on a regular schedule and they had hidden food behind the books in the library and things so there was molding desiccated food almost everywhere every corner you looked they had they had hidden food and uh, so got that place cleaned up again it was an interesting experience i i, I enjoyed the time on the farm somewhere along the line i Turned China yellow. My eyeballs, my fingernails, my belly, and uh, the the diagnosis was cancer of the liver. The pre-diagnosis, and eventually, I was out of the hospital in ten days. They decided that it they had made a mistake and that it was really uh, hepatitis. And uh, I was still still doing the rehab from that. Went back to the farm for just a little while. I somewhere in the process of of that, the hepatitis and. And making contacts with the farm, I had filled out a, an application for a, a, a grant to spend a year at Johns, Johns Hopkins and, and uh, study alcoholism, and it was a combined program with Hopkins in the city of Baltimore. And I—I I did. I don't think I would have ever had the nerve to ask for it if I had. But I thought I was dying. I thought I had was diagnosed as cancer of the liver. I thought I won't be here long. What the hell does difference does it make? So I I made that application, and I got the grant. So I spent an academic year with that program, and again, it was a lot of fun. I don't have many triggers as far as drinking is concerned. I wanted to be sober almost from the, well, not almost, uh, actually from the first meeting. I fell in love with the program. I wanted to be sober. I wanted a different way of life, and the program offered that to me, and that was fine with me, and I was what, what you ask every newcomer to do. I was willing to do anything to, to get that sobriety. It didn't matter. I would I would turn it all over And when I took the, the second and third step. The second step for me was hope. It was the hope that I could be the way I saw the rest of you and that I could begin to, to live a sober life and that it would last. Uh, the third step I took quite literally, and part of it was because I'm lazy. I thought if I can just turn all my pro- problems over to a higher power, then I don't have to worry about anything anymore. Well, I was worried. I was right about the, I don't have to worry about anything anymore. But it took me a while to get on. And when I said that I was open-minded and willing to do anything, there were reservations. Anything that, when I went through the 12 steps, anything that said God or had a capital H for he or him in it, they weren't fooling me with that that capital he or him bit. I knew what they were talking (laughs) about. And I didn't want any part of that. The hair on my arms and the back of my neck would actually stand up. I had, I didn't want anything to do with it. Anything that sounded like Christianity, or any other religion for that matter. Uh, I grew up in a household with a Lutheran father, a, a Christian Science mother, an Irish Catholic grandmother. Uh, she would she would take me to mass to make my father mad, and they fought for years. So I got to I got a lot of mass out of the thing too. I uh, I was an alderman in a Methodist youth group. I was I sang in an Episcopal boys choir. I graduated from a Presbyterian college. I arrived at AA a very devout atheist, <laughs> and even that is a more joke than anything else. I don't know that I was ever an atheist. I was sure an agnostic. Yeah, little little by little, I don't. I think I've, I think I've qualified enough to give you an idea of where I was and what what things were like, and what happened for that matter. Like I just n- never knew I was having my last drink. I didn't know that I was on my way to an A meeting when I walked into the. That photographer's shop, that day, and John stayed my sponsor for the, for years and years. And in a lot of ways, he still is. He was kind of tall, very slender. His eyes were set back, and his head about that far. He had a huge, big nose. He was not a good-looking man, <laughs> and he was loud. He was vulgar. Uh, he yelled, he yelled a lot. And I think he tried to scare people to keep them at the, at a distance because he he was really he had a great heart, and he would do anything in the world for you, and. Uh, I was lucky enough to have him for quite a few years, and like I said, I can still hear him in my head. And uh, so he's still my sponsor in a lot of ways. I've uh, I, I've, I've chosen other sponsors along the way, but uh, I, don't, I don't know. It never seemed that important to me. I, I worked my way through the steps, and I've already told you that that was a problem. If it if it had a capital He or a capital H for him, the word God, even, even the phrase higher power was kind of a turn off for me. Again, I, I knew what they were talking about. They weren't fooling me with that higher power shit. After I'd been sober for, for a while, and worked my way through through those programs, I ended up back in my own hometown. My sister was diagnosed with cancer, and she wasn't as lucky as I was. And when she was in, in the last months of her life, I went home to be with my mother and dad. I gave up that farm in southern southern Pennsylvania, and just went home, and one of the guys from the farm went home with me, and and we worked from, for the family construction company. She, in a lot of ways, was my best friend, so I was not just losing a sister, I was losing my best friend, and, and it was really rough on me. I would go to work during the day, and at night, I'd get in a pair of pajamas and sit in front of a TV set, and I never went anywhere. I just was back to those days when I didn't want to see anybody at all. I was never a lone drinker, so I wasn't drinking during that time, Or at least I wasn't, you know, even even concerned about about drinking. I just sat there and and used whatever excuse I could think of to not go anywhere, not do anything. Somebody called me and they said, "As long as you're here and you have all the education that you have as far as rehab is concerned, would you counsel one boy in a in a program that they had?" And I said, "Yeah, I'll I'll counsel one boy." And two weeks later, I was director of their program. (laughs) They had had a Roman Catholic priest who they didn't realize that he was drinking right there in the rehab center. When we opened his closet, the, the top shelf on his, it was all the empty bottles were stashed away in the, in the closet. He, uh, he told somebody at one point that his life's ambition was to see my he- hide stuffed over his mantle. <laughs> we were good friends at one time. Yeah, I took and spent some time with, with that program. So, you know, I never got along very well with boards of directors, So I. I stole their program out from underneath their, their board of directors. And the, the Catholic Church, like I said, I'm a Protestant puppy, basically. But the Catholic Church was very good to me. They gave me an old nursing home. It was a huge outfit. We probably could have easily slept 30, 40 people in that complex. They had built a dormitory over, at one point, what had been a family swimming pool. And the old mansion, We just the church gave us the whole thing, and all we had to do was pay the pay the bills to keep it keep it from freezing and and that was a problem with a building that big and that old. Our our heating bills were for four and a half, five hundred bucks a month. But it was fun again. I, I enjoyed I enjoyed all the service work. I enjoyed all the places that I worked for and all those rehab centers that I that I worked in. But I still had that problem. I was beginning to realize that there was probably more to the spiritual end of the program than I had been willing to admit in the beginning. I began to Think differently about the steps, and in the beginning, I had just kind of briefed over them and not worried too much about it. And my sponsor let me get away with that. He, he never, he never worried about my working steps. For for me, the the program was pretty much the camaraderie, and the friendships. And uh, it took me a long time. And when I say a long time, I'm I'm talking about a few months, because now people talk about a long time before they start start really working the steps. And they're talking about two or three years. I, uh, there's no way that I could have managed that. I probably would have been drunk if I had waited that that long. So, eventually, I did start working. What I found was that as I began to work the steps, I began to see more and more sense to, to them. It wasn't just a matter of the alcoholism. Maybe the primary purpose of of the program is recovery from alcoholism, but the ultimate, the ultimate program is to get you into a spiritual life, whether that whatever that means to you and for me, I could begin to see that if I worked the steps the way they were meant, the first nine nine steps it robbed it robbed the ego of the of its defects and its character flaws, and as that happened, the chaos in my life began to reduce, and as the chaos began to reduce the conscious contact began to improve, and it got to the point where there was a lot of intuitive knowledge where answers to my problem would just suddenly be there in my mind. There was no thought leading up to it. There was no linear thought leading to the conclusions. The information was just there. And that was startling for me, for someone who had never believed in things like that. And uh, all of a sudden, to have it start to happen, and the feeling that went along with it was great. And that speaker circuit that I had talked about, I would start to talk, and for the first few minutes, you know, I would be nervous and shaky, and all of a sudden this other thing, this this intuition, would just flood into my mind, and and what I wanted to say next, and the stories would just fill my mind as I talked, and my voice, my vocabulary, that I would become part of the group just like anyone else, because what I was really listening to was that intuitive knowledge pouring into my consciousness, and that went on. I could depend on it. It would happen almost every time I spoke to a group somewhere after after the first few minutes that would kick in, and I think the groups could feel it as well as I did. You could tell the change in, in their, their attention, and uh, every once in a while, I would wait for it to kick in so that I could join the group and just listen with everybody else, and it wouldn't happen. When it happened, I felt good. The feeling that went along with it was just fantastic. When it didn't happen I thought, Oh shit, I don't ever want to do this again. I don't ever want to make another talk, another speech in my whole whole life. And eventually I'd get conned into doing another one and it would be all right again. But I, I hated those those times where I was banking on it happening and it didn't happen. And it was just me standing up there in front of a microphone wondering what do I say next, like tonight, you know. <laughs> no, you could you've been great and I think we must be running close to time. But at any rate, that's that's where I was and pretty much where I am now. Uh, I, I do a meditation group here in, or over in, I guess it's still Overland Park. It's just off of 75th to 7400 block on Neiman. And I guess we're giving that up, too. We lost we lost that room, too. So the, the New City Church has offered us a new one, but I haven't seen it yet. And uh, so maybe for a week or so it's going to be without that meditation meeting, and I will miss that. It's, I've I've enjoyed doing it. Okay, I thank you all very much for, for your time and your attention and I think whatever 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 Simon wants to do.
0: So that concludes this episode of AA Beyond Belief. Hope you enjoyed it. Uh, we will be back again next Wednesday for another speaker. We'll be doing this uh, pretty much indefinitely. We have enough secular AA speaker recordings to last us a long time. But that being said, if you happen to speak someplace at an open AA meeting, a conference, or a roundup, whatever, please record your talk and send it in to us, and we will post it on the podcast. So uh, before I leave, just let me say one more time that we appreciate you listening, and we appreciate your support. If you'd like to help us out financially, uh, we would certainly appreciate that too. You can do that by heading on over to Patreon at patreon.com/aaBeyondBelief and just set up some small recurring donations. You can also do that through PayPal at paypal.me/aaBeyondBelief, or just head on over to our website aabeyondbelief.org and click on the donate button. So that's about all we've got. We'll be back again real soon with another episode of AA Beyond Belief, the podcast.